Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and today my conversation partner is Professor Nancy Piercy, uh, the author of the most recent book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. So we thought since our podcast is Questions That Matter, and her book is about hard questions, this was a perfect connection. Uh, Professor Piercy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, and I, I appreciate your parallel there between the title of my book and the title of the program. That was great. Well, let me tell our listeners just a little bit about you. Uh, you have written this book, Love Thy Body, but you've also written several other books, uh, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Total Truth. Um, she is a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's been highlighted as one of five top women apologists by Christianity Today magazine, and The Economist has said she's America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. And it is as uh, an intellectual that I think you have helped the body of Christ so very, very much. You've helped us think deeply and uh, uh, biblically about really, really difficult issues. Uh, I've really benefited from your work. And uh, I know that quite a few people going through our fellows programs have, have you've kind of helped us see things in a larger perspective and a larger light. So we're very, very grateful for that. Um, I, I know that you um, came to faith coming from an agnostic background and you were influenced a great deal by Francis Schaeffer. And I, I just wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about that story, about how, how that took place. Yeah, that's, that's an important question because that is why I came up with the Christian worldview perspective that you're talking about, which is, like you said, is so broad, kind of gives a whole framework for how we think as Christians. And that is a product of having become a Christian at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer in Switzerland. Uh, and I would say I was, I was born into a Lutheran family. Um, I say Lutheran as opposed to Christian, <laughs> very intentionally there. Um, because we, my parents were Scandinavian, and a lot of their Lutheranism seemed, seemed to me to be more about ethnicity. Uh, but I started asking my parents, you know, what when I was in high school, I started asking my parents, why are you a Christian? And they really didn't understand my, my questions because that's, their mentality was, well, we're Swedish. <laughs> what else are you going to be if not Lutheran? Um, and I even <laughs> had, a, had a chance to ask a Christian college professor why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. I thought, that's it? That's all you've got? <laughs> and I had a chance to talk to a mm. seminary professor, uh, seminary dean, in fact, um, who was also, also Lutheran. And he said, all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. So I finally decided, mm. I was about halfway through high school at this point, And I thought, well, if Christianity doesn't have any good reasons, then you shouldn't believe it. You know, I felt I felt it was sort of a matter mm, of intel yeah. intellectual honesty that you shouldn't believe anything that you didn't have good mm. reasons for, whether it's Christianity or anything else. So I very intentionally walked away from my Christian upbringing and started actively looking, <laughs> searching for a worldview, you know, uh, which sounds um, a little ambitious for a 16-year-old, but I was going 
to the library mm. at the public high school I attended and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, where do you find people who even talk about these things? If, if the, the adults in my life don't, mm. won't talk to me about it, maybe, maybe these dead guys, right? <laughs> um, philosophers are supposed to be handling questions <laughs> like, like what, is, what is truth and how do we know it? And is there a purpose to life? And is there a foundation for ethics? Or is it just, you know, true for me, true for you? Hmm. And I eventually decided, I decided fairly quickly that if there was no God, then the answer to all those questions was no. You know, there isn't a foundation for ethics. There is no purpose for life. We are, you know, a product of accidental chemical reactions flying on a rock through space. So I went pretty quickly into oh, moral relativism, skepticism, maybe even nihilism. Uh, and it was in, in that condition <laughs> that I arrived at Libri. Um, I was going to school in Europe because we had lived in, in Europe when I was a child. And so I had gone back to Europe. And that's okay. why. That, mm. Yeah. So what, how did you end up in Switzerland? <laughs> that's how, because I was already going to school in Germany. And um, people, okay. sometimes, people sometimes say, well, why would you go to a Christian place if you went to Christian? Well, the reason I went is that I had some family members who were traveling through and they stopped at Libri and said, hey, come down and see us. <laughs> so I wasn't going to oh, Christian. Great. Okay. <laughs> <That's something. laughs> I wasn't going to a Christian place because it was Christian. I was going there to see my family members um, who were going back to the States. And so I wouldn't mm -hmm. have a chance. To, I would not have a chance to see them again. And while I was there, um, it was very evident that I was not a Christian and they just said, we have a free bed. We have a free bed. You want to stay? That, that's how Libri was run back then. It was very, um, it was very open-ended. If they had a free bed, they'd say, mm -hmm. you have questions? You want to stay? You, and I had never, I have to tell you, I was very impressed by Libri. First of all, because they did have answers to my questions. They had done the, they had the, mm. read the same, same philosophers that I was reading by this time. They had thought through the questions of mm. moral relativism mm -hmm. and skepticism and determinism. And that was one of my isms, too. Um, I, I thought science showed that we were just complex biochemical machines anyway and had no free will. Um, so, And they had the, the staff at Libri had thought through all of these things. And the first time I had ever met Christians who had actually thought through these questions that had answers. Um, and not mm. only that, but... Uh, How were, long were you there altogether? Oh, sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not only I was going to say not only that, but, but Schaefer is really, really uh, well known for his support for the arts. And I was studying music at the conservatory mm -hmm. in Heidelberg. So that impressed me as well. So the first time I was there, I stayed only a month. And the reason I stayed only a month was that um, I was afraid I might become a Christian. <laughs> I was afraid I was afraid I might because it was so attractive. It was so appealing. I was afraid I might give in before I was truly convinced. And I don't want to do that. Christianity had already let Isn't me down once. <laughs> so I left. I went huh. back to the States. But and, and just strictly on my own, reading reading apologetics, you know, through Libri, I discovered there was such a thing as apologetics. So just through my own reading, mm, okay. I, eventually, I eventually decided uh, I was intellectually convinced it was true. And so a year and a half later, I went back. I thought uh, I wasn't connected to a church or anything. So I said, once I became a Christian, uh, you know, just from reading apologetics, I said, okay, where do I find other Christians? 
well, I knew some back at Labrie. So I went back to Labrie a year and a half later <laughs> <laughs> and uh, stayed for four months. And so that's where I really got grounded in Christian worldview and apologetics. And um, that's been my life ever since is trying to help other young people who have questions like I did. I love it. Boy, this this is great. I, I, I did not know this story. I mean, I, I'd read some things that, you know, you had come to faith through Labrie, but um, how how wonderful. Um, and, and, you know, two things stand out there is one is they respected your questions. They didn't yes. just dismiss them or they didn't give non-answers. And, um, and then to then give really good thoughtful answers. So it's both. We need to be really careful that we don't just dismiss questions. When people are asking good questions, if in fact they are sincere, we we need to respect those. And uh, obviously that played out very, very well for you. Right. Schaefer used to say we need to give honest answers to honest questions. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, you know, I teach apologetics courses at HBU, Houston Baptist University, and I get students sometimes who do dismiss non-Christians questions, and they say things like, Mm -hmm. well, it's really just a moral issue, or they're really just rebellious, or they're really this or really that, and I say, no, God made everyone in his image with a mind, Mm. and even if they do have moral issues, we still have to respect their mind. We still have to respect the questions that they do have. Often you have to go through the intellectual questions they have before you can get to the underlying moral or emotional issues. Um, and, and I had to do that too. I, 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 had, I did have, after growing up in the church, some emotional negative feelings toward the church as well. But I couldn't deal with those until I was first convinced that intellectually that it was true. <laughs> that was first. Mm. Hmm. Well, um there's so much there, and and we still need to keep learning from Schaefer. I I think uh, he he was very helpful for me when I read his books as a fairly young believer. And again, th- there was this dual thing of here are answers, but there was also this reassurance of it's okay to ask these questions. In fact, it's good to ask these questions. And yes, there are reasons why you are drawn to art and music and beauty. And these are not things that take you away from God. They they can, but they but they should actually be tremendous pointers. So um, I'm so very grateful for that. Well, let's turn things just a bit now. You you've taken this. You've you were really trained to think biblically and worldview about truth and about art and beauty. Um, your book um, about saving Leonardo is taking this same kind of mindset and pointing it toward art and beauty. Um, and now you've written this book because of all of the issues that are being raised today about sexuality. So things like abortion and homosexuality and transgender. And and you've, again, you've helped us think biblically and from a worldview. Um, um, I, I don't think I need to ask you, now, why did you write this book? Because I have a feeling these issues, you know, they, they've just been coming up, you know, so uh, quickly and, and disturbingly. But but you say in your book that um, uh, that these, these, these issues that may seem kind of uh, unrelated are tremendously related and tied together. For You say that um, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, they're all kind of woven together under a worldview. Can you help us 
understand that? Yes, and I'll tie it back to Schaefer too. Um, you know, Schaefer's main message was that the reason Christians have a difficult time talking to their non-Christian neighbors and even their own children is that the concept of truth has changed. Historically, hmm. virtually all civilizations have known that there's a natural order and a moral order, moral slash spiritual order. And they thought that the two were integrated into a single cosmic whole. And therefore, truth would also be integrated into a single, coherent, internal, internally consistent whole. And it was really only in the, with the, in the modern age, with the rise of modern science, many people began to say, no, 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 the only real reliable knowledge we have is of the scientific realm, of empirical facts, what's, what can be tested in the laboratory. Well, in that case, what happens to moral and theological truths? People began to say, well, they're not really truths then. <laughs> they are just personal preference, personal feelings, ex you know, expression of your personal experience. And so they're just relativistic and private and personal. And Schaefer, Schaefer's not the only one who uses metaphor, but he used the metaphor of two stories in a building where the what's, what we know scientifically is in the lower story and what we what we just believe about theology and morality and so on about the spiritual realm is in the upper story where it's no longer even considered a matter of truth and uh, that was one i thought that was one when i was there when i was at Labrie, that was one of the most important um, themes that he that schaefer wrote about and of course if you as a result the concept of truth has been split apart that's what the two-story metaphor means what used to be considered a coherent mm. hall has been split apart and if your concept of truth is split, well, that will affect everything. Right? So I picked up these moral issues, not necessarily yes. expecting to find it there. Um, but I found that if you read the secular bioethicists, they have split the human being into two parts, which can be easily uh, basically fit into the upper story and the lower story, Schaefer's division. So if you read the key bioethicist on abortion, for example, um, but modern bioethicists all acknowledge that the fetus is human. That's really not an issue anymore. It's clear that human life begins with conception. The evidence from DNA and genetics is too strong to deny it. So how then do they get around that to support abortion? They say, well, genetically, biologically, physiologically, the fetus is human. In other words, what we know about the fetus scientifically in the lower story. But it doesn't become a person until some time later. And personhood is not a scientific fact. Mm. Personhood is a matter of how, how we assign value to the fetus's life, whether we give it any sort of legal protection, whether we give it any moral status. So in a sense, that fits into Schaefer's upper story because that's a matter of personal feelings about what we what we value in terms of the fetus's life. So Peter Singer, for example, at, at um, who's bioethicist at Princeton University, has written about this perhaps the most clearly and of course the most influentially. Um, and he he basically says that the body he uses the language of body person dualism. As long as the fetus is you know in early stages where we we can say it's it's biologically human. Um, that's you know it's, it's a body 
And then when it jumps into the upper story at some point, some arbitrary point, since it's not objective, at some point we're going to call it a person and, and give it moral status and legal protection. So he calls it the body person dualism. And so see how neatly that fits into what Schaefer was talking about, that even the way that hmm. we treat humans now is in this upper lower story divide. And of course, what's the problem with that? The most obvious problem is there's the upper story, the realm of value is completely separate from anything that we know objectively. And so it's completely arbitrary. Every bioethicist draws the line at a different place. So some will say, well, fetus becomes mm. human before birth. Some will say, no, some influential bioethicists now say no after birth. And Peter Singer has an essay where he even says three years of age is a gray area because how much cognitive functioning does a toddler have? So that's where we are now, where mm. the concept of personhood is completely in the upper story, completely subjective and com completely arbitrary. And therefore the law is completely arbitrary. Basically the, the, the law basically says whatever the, whatever, the, whatever the Supreme Court says is a person is a person with no, you know, no grounding in biology or anything. It's, it's purely by fiat. I'll return to my conversation on questions that matter in just a second, but I, I would like to invite each and every one of you to prayerfully consider becoming a ministry partner with the C.S. Lewis Institute. Our ministry is about discipleship, discipleship of the heart and mind, helping people love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, but as you might guess, a, a ministry of discipleship is not always the most exciting thing that uh, people consider. Um, but we, we believe that your tuning into this podcast probably indicates that you've had very positive experiences and have benefited from the Institute over the years. So please click the button that says donate and become a ministry partner with us. You know, um, uh, I, I, as I listen, I, I think, you know, I, I think our world, well, in some ways, this is, this is so very, very similar to the devil's lies to the man and the woman in the garden. And, and he came across sounding like he had good news. Did God really say, and uh, you shall not surely die um, so it sounded like, no, 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 this, this is better. You know, this, you know, uh, you, you'll know good and evil. But in fact, he, he was offering good news, but delivered very, very, very deadly bad news. And I think that that's, you know, our world offers, well, you know, you can be free and you don't have to be, uh, you know, strapped down by this child. You can be free but then it becomes this terribly evil bad news that that scars uh, people for life, and it ends the life of the baby. Um, how do, how does the same uh, thing about truth worldview then shape uh, people's thinking and living about um, homosexuality and transgender uh, lifestyle? Yeah, I'll start with transgenderism because it's easier to see there. Um, it's very evident in the uh, rhetoric from transgender activists themselves. They themselves say your body has nothing to do with your gender identity. Your hmm. biological sex is completely separate from your gender identity. So they, their own rhetoric is basically saying 
um, there's a split you know, between who we are biologically, genetically, chromosomally, chromosomally, and who we are in terms of our internal sense of self. And so uh, the B BBC has an, uh, a documentary on the subject where they literally said, um, at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, of mm. course, it's the mind that wins. And so kids mm. down to kindergarten today are being taught that their body tells them nothing about who they are, that it's not part of their authentic self. And so I would say that as mm. Christians, our, our response should be, uh, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? Christianity teaches that the body is the handiwork of God and has great value and dignity. That's you talked about good news. That's genuinely good news that that our bodies do have value and dignity. And even some secular people are starting to see that this is the issue. Um, I saw an interview. It was after my book came out. Um, there was an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from the age of 11 and who had reclaimed her identity as a girl at age 14. And she said, the turning point came when I realized, and this is a direct quote, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And that would have been a great quote for a book ah. titled Love Thy Body. But this was on a very secular liberal website. And what it means is that even secular people are beginning to see that the issue in the transgender controversy is the view of the body you know that that's in fact you'll st you'll see this sometimes mm -hmm. um they'll say transgenderism is body hatred quote unquote body hatred even mm. secular people are starting mm. to see that that's the issue and so we're in a position a position as christians to be able to say hey we've always said that the body is the handiwork of god and has great value because you know it 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 represents the pur purpose of a loving creator. And, and so as Christians, we should always have a very high view of the body. Yes, the, uh, the, the world has fallen, but that doesn't negate the beauty and dignity that was there. It's, it's like um, if you deface an, a, beautiful man, a beautiful masterpiece, artistic masterpiece, it, you can mm -hmm. still see the beauty shining mm -hmm. through. And that's the Christian view of the fall, is that you right. can still see the beauty of God's handiwork shining through. And Christians should be out there um, being the ones who are communicating a very high view of the material world as as the creation of a loving creator. Well, I, I you know, I, I love the fact that the title of your book is a very, very positive statement. And you, you show us many times in the book that we're the ones with the positive statement about the physical body. We're the ones with the positive view. We're we're the ones with the unified view of what it means to be a whole person. We don't we don't divide up our physical body from our mind or our emotions. No, God created us a a, a unified person. Now, sure, there are aspects. You know, when you're treating a broken bone, well, okay, but. That Hebrew word nefesh of soul—it's—it's a—it's a—it's a very broad, all-encompassing thing about our unified nature. Um, the the biblical teaching about the heart—it's the center of our whole being, physical and emotional and intellectual. And so I think that that's part of what we want to say: is 
again, because our world is, you know, wanting to tell people, you know, you can be set free, you can be who you want to be or who you create to be. And and we want to say, you know, that's really not a good offer. A much better picture, a much better offer is God's view of our body and our personhood as a unified person. Yeah, it's uh, the same thing applies to homosexuality, mm-hmm. which you asked about as well. Um, the and again, it rests on a low view of the body. It rests on a denigration of the body. Even my gay friends will agree with me. They'll go with me this far. Um, no one really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes. Males and females are counterparts to one another. That is how the, sec- the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. Mm-hmm. To embrace a same-sex identity, then, is to contradict that design. Hmm. It's to implicitly say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex, as male or female, have any say in my moral choices? So what we have to help people to see is this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body and and it pits the mind against the body. So it leads Mm -hmm. to internal fragmentation and alienation. And so again, our message can be positive. We can be saying to people, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you said, in in my book, Love Thy Body, I argue for a holistic view. Uh, The Christian ethic is incarnational meaning that our mind and emotions are meant to be in tune with our body. They're meant to be to align with our body. They're meant to be in harmony with who God created us to be. There's a, um, I tell a lot of stories in the book, and one of my favorite ones is in the book, the chapter on homosexuality. Um, and it's a young man named Sean Doherty, who uh, grew up in, a, he grew up in what he called a gay affirming family mm-hmm. and attended a gay affirming church. Hmm. And he was exclusively attracted to other men, but he thought that was perfectly okay. So he wasn't driven by shame or guilt. Hmm. And people say, well, then why do you, today I should say, today he's married to a woman and has three children. By the way, he's also a Christian ethics professor Hmm. um, in London. But, so what what changed for him? He says, "Um, I I decided to stop defining myself by my sexual feelings. Hmm. And I started regarding my physical body as central to who I was. He said, I wasn't trying to change my feelings directly, which rarely works. But what I did as I started to acknowledge what I already had, which was a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually my feelings started to follow suit. So this is really the heart of this debate. I love it. Isn't that great? I love that story. Um, because it was the first, it was the first story I yes, read across where, yes. where somebody said, my feelings, my homosexual feelings changed when I started to respect my body, when I started to treat it as a good gift from God. Mm, amazing. Yeah. And, and I, what I tell people then, uh, especially non-Christians is that this is the, this is really the, the question at the heart of this debate is, are we products of blind material forces and can do whatever we want with our bodies mm-hmm. or are we the product of a loving creator who had a purpose for creating us this way? And that therefore we're morally obligated to respect that purpose. Mm. 
You know, um, I, I, that was a feature of your book that I was really grateful for of the many stories in there. So you, you, you spend a, a good amount of time explaining things in theory, but then you don't leave them there. It's, and so here's how this worked out in a person's life. And you're right. I do. I do love that story about Sean because it is. It, it it's going from the. Let me let me start with the reality of this physical body that I have, and what does that tell me about how I should live? You know, it it does seem to me one of the the greatest tragedies of the current very very pro homosexual movement is um, well, and not just homosexual, but all of these is that. Um, the, the claim that your identity is your gender, that, that your gender is what makes or gives you an identity. And uh, I, I think that's a terribly reductionist view of, of what it means to be a person, what our identity is. It also puts an amazing amount of pressure on <laughs> gender and sexuality to fulfill the, the, all that is wrapped up in identity. And I, as Christians, we want to say, no, our identity is so much bigger. It's we're persons created in the image of God. And we look to God for our identity. And then that works itself out with all sorts of things. Yeah, I like your word reductive. I think that's a, a very good word. It's reductive because it reduces identity to one dimension, you know, to use Schaefer's mm. upper and lower story again. It's it's the upper story. You know, you totally disregard the lower story, you know, who I am biologically. There are, there's a transgender website that actually says um, the phrase biological sex is a hate term. Uh, and, yeah, I've heard that. And, mm. and harmful to trans people. They're trying to completely deny the lower story of who we are biologically and so on. Mm. Uh, let me... Um, I'll give you a quote. This is another one of my favorite quotes from the book, Love Thy Body. Um, and you, you probably know her. There's a uh, well-known public intellectual named Camille Paglia. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of Christians actually read her stuff because she's kind of an iconoclastic feminist. She does mm-hmm. not believe that gender is, a, is purely a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Uh, we are male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But then you say to her, then uh, she identifies as a lesbian. In fact, m- my most recent um, interview, I heard she's now calling herself transgender. So you ask her, well, how is it then that you can be gay or, or trans? And here's, what, here's how she argues it. She says, you know, our bodies are part of nature and nature is a product of mindless, purposeless forces. And therefore, the body has no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect. And the mind is free to use it any way it wants. And here's, let me give you her, her exact words. She says, you know, nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? Fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So in other words, what she's saying is, you know, my mind is separate from my body, kind of like, you know, the way I am, the way I'm separate from a machine and I can use this machine however I want to, because there's, there's no operating manual. There's no, nothing that says that I have to use it one way rather than another. And this is really uh, at, at the heart of this 
of this debate is, you know, does the body, does nature itself, to be more, you know, the body is part of nature, does nature itself exhibit any sort of design or plan or order to which Christians should be saying, of course it does. Of course mm-hmm. nature exhibits a purpose, you know, from on a very fundamental level, eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, wings are made for flying, and fins are made for swimming. In fact, the 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 smoking gun, I think, is DNA, that the whole development of the organism is directed by an inbuilt plan or blueprint. So really what Christians are saying is that if you live in, a, in harmony with that purpose, you will be happier and healthier. Right, and that's the good news in this, that, that uh, this is by design and by a purposeful personal designer uh, and a good and loving designer. Um, I hope you're benefiting from listening to these podcasts and and I hope you're also availing yourself to the many resources we have at our website, cslewisinstitute.org. I, I do want to say that the C.S. Lewis Institute ministry is um, by definition, by design, n- not a terribly flashy ministry. We don't have spectacular results to report. If if we're successful and fruitful, um, the, the results of our ministry are usually second and third hand. We, we disciple people and then other people go do pretty flashy and amazing things. So I, I hope you'll keep that in mind as perhaps you pray and think about becoming a ministry partner with us. We're, we're seeing God do some great things through the people who get discipled through our fellows programs and different uh, resources. I, I hope you'll consider that and visit our website and click the uh, appropriate buttons that say things like donate. Well, um, you you tell a couple of stories, or at least one that I can remember, where you, you use the term, I, I'm not sure if I got it exactly right, but someone who identified as transgender and then came back, de- detransitioned, is that is that the word? Um, tell us that yes. story. Well, um, there are a the couple of them. The one I mentioned already, the girl who said, I learned to love my body. You know, she mm-hmm. was, she detran, that, it, that would be the word for what she did. She detransitioned. Um, okay. I, tell, I tell a story um, about um, a young boy who had gender dysphoria from a very young age. I, I should stop and say there's two kinds of gender dysphoria these days. True gender dysphoria has always been evident from a very young age. Um, transsexualism is what it used to be called before it was called transgenderism, and it was primarily male, primarily applied to men, and always appeared at a young age. These hmm. days, what we're having is, uh, if you look at the charts, <laughs> there's this huge, sudden, steep spike in the number of girls that are claiming a transgender identity. And many of them, it's when they're teenagers or at least adolescents and they have never shown any sign of gender dysphoria before they've, they've been you know apparently you know to all to, for all the parents can tell they've been t- totally happy being a girl and so because this is so new and it's not the typical pattern it's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria oh my <laughs> it's coming it's coming <laughs> out of nowhere not <laughs> funny <laughs> no but but I tell the story, I do tell the story of a, a young boy who, um, 
while he was crawling, I mean, before he was even walking, it was evident that he was, uh, he, he fit the stereotypes for a little girl um, much more than a little boy. Uh, his, his, his babysitter told his mother, he's too good to be a boy, by mm. which she meant mm. he's quiet, he's compliant, he's gentle, mm. and all the things that you expect more of a, of a girl. When he was in preschool, when his mother picked him up every day, he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys. And already in elementary school, he was coming to his parents weeping repeatedly and saying, mm. I think the way girls do, I feel the way girls do. God should have made me a girl. Mm. And by age 14, he was on the internet looking for a sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, his parents made sure he knew they loved him just the way he was. They did not try to change him. And I think this is important because um, often people do try to change these kids. I, I had a friend in, when I was in seminary who uh, was a former homosexual. And he, he said, that when I was little, I, I loved art and poetry. And my dad was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up by pushing mm. me into more, into more masculine things like sports. Hmm. So this little boy, by the way, I called him Brandon in the book. Brandon's parents did not do that. They said, it's perfectly okay for you to be a gentle, sensitive, relational boy. Hmm. <laughs> it hmm. does not mean you're a girl. It mm -hmm. probably means that God has equipped you for one of the caring professions, like psychologist, uh, counselor, healthcare worker. Hmm. And they they showed him the um, gift of the spirit. The gifts of the spirit are not divided by sex. You know, teaching and prophecy great, are not male, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? As you as we might expect. And and um, your service service and mercy are not female. Mm -hmm. They they even took him through. Uh, <laughs> his parents took him through uh, personality tests, like the Myers Briggs personality test. Mm. And showed him that according to Myers Briggs, you know, the whole spectrum is open to both sexes. You can be very yeah. much on, on the gentle, sensitive side and be a male or a female. And you can be more on the rational, take charge, assertive side and be a female. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's perfectly possible. Uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with you. That's uh, his parents' favorite line was, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and boy, does that need to be pronounced and proclaimed all over. Uh, these are very, very limiting stereotypes. Instead of allowing for the diversity that God creates in people. Yes, if you look at bell curves of male and female, they they very closely overlap. We have we're mm. far more alike than we are different, men and women. So. I, I, sh I should say that uh, the, the end of this story was that... Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, by, by late teens, I think, uh, Brandon had decided to embrace his identity as a boy. Here's how he put it. I realized that even um, surgery would not give me what I wanted. It wouldn't make me a girl. You know, you are, every cell has a sex. There's a very famous TED Talk by a cardiologist. Uh, and the title is Every Cell Has a Sex, because mm. every cell of your body is mm. either male or female. It's not the DNA mm. for male or female. And of course, as a cardiologist, her concern was health. Um, sy symptoms of an impending heart attack are different in men and women. 
and mm. it, doctors were being trained only to see the male symptoms. They were sending women home and the women were having heart attacks. The, the, huh. the TED talk is about how we have to have more healthcare geared towards women. But, well, it's very popular when you can go watch it online, um, watch it on YouTube. But underneath, I started reading the comments and underneath there were all these comments saying, she's so transphobic. And you would say, mm. what? She never even mm. talked about transgenderism. But the very fact that she had argued for a gender binary or really a sexual binary, because you know, she's talking about the biology, the biological mm. binary, that there were men and women had people saying, oh, that's transphobic. And as I kept reading the comments, finally, there was one wise person who said, look, she's not transphobic. She's just saying that when you get sick and the doctors put you on the operating table, they need to know your original biological sex to give mm. you the best quality medical care. Mm. Well, um, boy, these stories, you know, they, 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 you ride a, an emotional roller coaster because some of the stories are, are deeply discouraging and, oh, my goodness, where are we heading? And then you hear stories like Sean and like uh, Brandon and others. And you, oh, well. And, and those are the stories that don't get told too often. So I'm really glad you tell them in your book. And, and we, we need more and more of those stories for people to hear. Um, I, I want to just point out one other thing for our listeners that your book does that I was so thankful for. You have this study guide at the back of the book. And uh, very often people ignore the study guides, I'm sorry to say. But, but yours are filled with here's how you can answer these questions or here are some things you can say when someone says this to you. Here's how you can respond. And uh, so, so the book is is helpful on several different different le levels. And I was so grateful to see that because sometimes we we finish reading these great books and we're we're still stuck with okay, but I don't know what I'm going to say. So you really help us with that, and I, I was really very grateful for that. Yeah, when I speak publicly, um, people, that's often the question. You know, but what do we do now? And yeah. I realized, you know what, it's, a lot of what you do is just learn how to speak differently. I like the way you, you emphasize that. What do I say? And so now I really emphasize um, how to have a positive message that will be um, appealing. It's like the Sean Doherty story, he says, uh, I, learned to re I, I learned to accept my body as a good gift from God. Well, that's a positive message. It's mm -hmm, saying my body mm -hmm. is good. You know, it's a good gift. And uh, uh, another story, by the way, that I, I tell in the book is about a young woman who lived as a lesbian for many years. And then um, eventually became a Christian, is married now with two children. And she said, I learned, I can't, wait, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to mm. honor, I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. I wanted to li beautiful. live and honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. And so this is the language we need to learn how to speak, honor my body, live in accord with the creator's design live in harmony with my bi biological sex, respect my body and who God gave me, uh, the, the body that God gave me, who he, who he made me to be. Um, 
one one more story was a, a shorter one was a woman named Rebecca who lived as a lesbian for about ten years, about a decade, and um, and she continued. Well, th this is important too. Not everybody um, has an instantaneous turnaround. Uh, mm -hmm, Rebecca was mm -hmm. an example of a woman who got married and still was um, having homosexual temptations. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's like anything. You can you can be tempted long afterwards, and so she was mm -hmm. still being tempted. Uh, she was still having girl crushes, so to speak, um, even after she was married. And her husband said to her, "Whatever your feelings are, because God made you female, you can be certain that you will ultimately ultimately be more fulfilled by a relationship with a man." And of course, he said it you know, goes both ways. If, because I'm a male, I can be absolutely certain that I will be more fulfilled by a woman. Mm -hmm. And for Rebecca, that made sense. I mean, it was logical. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, was an appeal to, it was an appeal to the mind. And, uh, and that was the beginning of the turnaround. It took a couple more years. But that was the beginning of the turnaround when she said, well, that makes total sense. If God made me female, I will ultimately, ultimately be more fulfilled living as a female. And so again, it's um, you know, the, the positive message, not shame and guilt. Uh, I had um, I was talking to a psychologist who's um, who's a Christian, but who's kind of gone off the rails on the question of homosexuality. And he kept it was he was kind of scolding me and saying, you know, you can't heap more guilt on these people. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> look at the message. That's the whole point is I'm giving them the language of honoring their body, respecting their body, honoring the creator's design, living in harmony with who God made you to be. These are all positive, all positive language. And we will do a lot if all we do is train ourselves to use that positive language. Mm hmm. Well, I, I want to keep talking for hours, but um, I think we need to bring this to a close, but that's a good place to bring it to a close. I, I, I kept underlining words you were saying, honor, respect, love, living in harmony, fulfill. And, and it all fits under this umbrella of trusting a good and loving God who created us um, with, with physical bodies for a purpose. Um, this is such a very, very important uh, message or, or set of messages. Um, uh, I, I, I want to, uh, I'm going to give you a, a chance for a last word, so to speak, but I, I want to say uh, thank you for doing the difficult work of this kind of research. It's, it's a lot of work, first of all. It's a lot of emotionally difficult work, and you've served the body of Christ well by uh, giving us data and information and, and stories to help us uh, take on these very, very difficult challenges. So uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. Any last uh, story or uh, uh, statement you want to make before we uh, sign off, so to speak? Uh, once in a while, when I speak on these subjects, especially with younger people, college and high school, they'll say, you know, um, this would have more impact if we knew you'd been there. And so I want to say that um, <laughs> you say it was a lot of work writing this. Well, the real work was working with uh, people in my family, people close to me who are themselves struggling with these issues. None of this is just from books. 
well, none of this. A lot of this is from books, but a lot of it, the, the emotional intensity of reaching out to people comes from the fact that, you know, a lot of these, you, you notice that I don't give the real names for most of the people in the book. It's because they're very close to me in some mm -hmm. way or another. And so and mm -hmm. I, I find myself having to, uh, having to reassure audiences that I've been there personally. You know, this isn't just... Uh, academic. And somebody asked me once, well, why'd you write this? I said, well, let me tell you about the people in my life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very personal mm -hmm, wrestling. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I, I have to, I can't, I can't say who they are because I don't, that's, they're not my stories. Right. Um, but there are people very close to me and I've walked, I've walked very closely with a lot of these, you know, um, pe people struggling with homosexuality or transgenderism or, having had abortions, all of these are people that I've known personally. And so uh, that, I think that is helpful for the reader because most readers these days I'm finding are not reading it just for academic purposes. They're reading it because their daughter has just announced that she's trans or their son has just announced that he's gay mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. daughter has just had a, an abortion, um, a, a grandson you know, it's just come out as trans. It's amazing. Even in my classroom now, almost everybody has a personal relationship with somebody who's struggling with this. Or, the, or my students themselves are. Yes, yes. You know, uh, I should say. Uh, right, so right. One, one boy was mm -hmm. in my class for a whole semester and never said anything. And then at, at the end of the final, I actually went out into the hallway to say goodbye to him because, you know, he was walking out of my classroom and I wouldn't see him again. And that's when he told me the reason I took this class is because I've been struggling with homosexuality, you know, for the past several years. And mm. I, I, oh, I kind of wish I'd known at the time I might have been able to talk to him more. But that's that's what another another student, you know, said I'm bisexual. Um, another, you know, another student had just gone through a, a euthanasia crisis where her whole family decided to pull the plug on her on her grandmother, and she thought it was wrong, but she mm. was overruled. Mm -hmm. And so she had this horrendous sense of guilt that yeah. she hadn't been able mm. to to live by her convictions because she was overruled by her family. So again and again, uh, this is what we have to keep in mind when we talk about these issues. They are never purely academic. Everybody pretty much these days is has personal relationship with somebody who's struggling with these issues. Well, you have uh, really helped us a lot, and I'm so very, very grateful for your time on, uh, on our podcast. And um, I'm going to really encourage people, please check out uh, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, and, and her other books as well, Total Truth, Saving Leonardo. Um, there's a great deal of wisdom and very, very practical help in the midst of that. So we hope this podcast, like all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute, are helpful for you as you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Bye for now.